Little boys and little girls don't always go to bed on cue. Sometimes they have to be coaxed. And I had the plan. All right, all heads on the pillow before I count to ten, and I'll bring out the Coke cup. Oh, the good old Coke cup always did the job. They would race to bed with time to spare. You see, Mom was a stickler. She was a stickler. Their only opportunity for Coca-Cola was when Dad brought out the Coke cup. But you see, I had a secret. The Coke cup was always watered down. Maybe 30% Coca-Cola, 70% water. Hey, not enough firepower to restart any engines. Imagine my kids got excited and then outfoxed with watered-down Coca-Cola. And yet it breaks my heart to realize that all over America this morning, it gets repeated in churches all over our country, God's kids get lulled to sleep with watered-down doctrine, with a sip of truth in a sermon overflowing with fluff. You know, A.W. Tozer once said, some pastors have so watered down the gospel that if it were a medicine, it could not cure us, and if it were a poison, it would not harm us. You know, the Bible has an edge that you shouldn't file down or round off. We need the Bible to be as powerful as God intended it to be. Understand, your Bible, it's a dangerous book. This is certainly what the Scripture says of itself. God's Word calls itself a fire and a hammer and a sword. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the Lord asks the question, Is not my Word like a fire? This book is a sizzler. Get too close and you'll catch on fire. The Bible is highly flammable. In the same passage there in Jeremiah, the Lord asks, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? I mean, when you start swinging the scripture, hey, you better know what you're doing or you'll smash a thumb or worse. When, when Pastor Zach was a little, little bitty tyke, little bitty tyke, he was working hard with his big, huge hammer, and he was really focused, and he reared back to hit that nail, and he caught the claws of the hammer right in the back of his forehead right when he came down. You still see the scar even today. You better be careful with that hammer, and the Bible is like a hammer. The Bible is also a blade. Think of it as a switchblade or as a box cutter. I'm surprised the TSA screeners let you on board the aircraft with your Bible. Hebrews 4 verse 12 describes it as sharper than any two-edged sword. The reference was to the Roman short sword. The Marcarius was the most famous and feared weapon in the ancient world. It had no blunt side. Both edges were as sharp as a razor. It could cut you coming or going. Hey, a soldier skilled in its use could slice you and dice you in seconds. Here's my point. The Bible can char or it can crush or it can cut. The Bible is a weapon. The Bible is a manly tool. A, a baby can hurt himself on this book. It's no pacifier. Hey, you don't read the Bible just to hear it rattle. The Bible will lance the wound and it'll lay bare the motive and it'll cut us to the heart. The Bible performs synectomies. The Bible is like a surgeon's scalpel. 
Walk into the church and you ought to be handed a bulletin and a hospital gown. The Bible means business. The Word of God isn't massage therapy. It's surgery. And this is why it matters who handles the Bible. You would never let a child play with a lethal double edge or hand a blade over to a novice. I mean, let an idiot handle a hunting knife and he'll damage himself. He'll he'll take it and he'll actually cut his thumb just like that and slice the tendon on top of his thumb just like your pastor did and become a permanent hitchhiker. You can't bend it anymore. But here's where we can start connecting some of the dots here. Why do you think Paul places such a high priority on leadership in the church? You know, he says that elders need to be committed to no other doctrine than the Bible. They need to be able to discern what is contrary to false doctrine. Teachers need to be men and men who are apt to teach. They need to be sober-minded and not given to wine. They can't be greedy or covetous. We have to be able to trust their motive. And an elder, as we read in this morning's text, needs to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Why does character count? Because the pastor or the elder is the man who opens and who reads and who studies and who interprets and applies and proclaims the Word of God. He lights the fire and swings the hammer and wields the sword. You don't want this man to have character flaws that will mar his ministry. It's too strategic. It's too high stakes for him to be compromised. Look again at what's on the line. Paul says to Timothy in verse 16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. How you interpret the Bible affects you and the small circle of folks who are under your influence. But how a pastor interprets the Bible impacts everyone who hears him. If my teaching isn't an echo of what God has already said, if it originates in me, or if I'm infected by some other misguided soul, then I've jeopardized the internal destiny of a whole community of believers. In short, a pastor can lead a person to heaven or can mislead a person to hell. In chapter 5, Paul says that you need to pay the pastor. And in verse 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Double honor, that means a paycheck and some respect. But then he adds, Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. In other words, you want the men who teach to give themselves entirely to the work. Say you're scheduled for surgery at 7 a.m. in the morning. Do you want to hear that the surgeon was up all night delivering pizzas? Or that he's distracted because he doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills? This is the guy that's cutting you open, who's about to manipulate your innards. You want to make sure that that he had a comfortable bed and a good night's sleep the night before, or at least he stayed in the Holiday Inn Express. Hey, the guy who lights the fire needs a steady hand. The guy who swings the hammer needs a strong hand. A guy who handles the sword needs a skillful hand. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. This is what you look for in a pastor teacher. In the words of Paul to Timothy, give attention to reading. Continue in the doctrine. That's steadiness. 
He says, command and teach. Guard what was committed to your trust. That's strength. He says, be apt to teach. Exhort. Use wholesome words. That's skill. And a good teacher needs to be steady and strong and skillful. But most importantly, a good pastor needs to be spirit-led. In Ephesians 6, the Bible is called the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. A man inspired by an evil spirit or a man reliant on his own wisdom is a dangerous person. He'll cut himself or others. And yet a Bible teacher filled and led by the Holy Spirit will slay the enemy while performing surgery on the saints. He'll be an effective swordsman. As we've discussed in prior weeks, the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus builds the church. Church work is God's work. The two key components to a successful church are the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Yet there is a human element. God does appoint church leaders. He calls pastors and teachers and elders and deacons to serve in the church. Think of it this way. My Toyota truck was manufactured in San Antonio, Texas. But my mechanic lives in Snellville, Georgia. He'd be foolish to ever stand up and brag about how he built my truck. I mean, that's beyond his scope. But he does play a strategic role in keeping my truck on the road. He tunes it up and he makes repairs. He knows Toyotas and he's skilled at what he does. Perhaps most importantly, he's honest and I trust him. And a pastor or an elder is like a mechanic. Jesus builds the church. We don't. But I'm a mechanic. I pay attention to our spiritual health and how we stack up the scripture. I meditate on sound doctrine. I watch out for false doctrine and run off false teachers. My job is to keep us firing on all cylinders. If you were an expert on combustion engines, you wouldn't need a mechanic. By definition, a mechanic needs to study more and know more. You believe in his diagnosis. This is why he has to be a man that you can trust. You see, the pastor is a a biblical grease monkey. That's what he is. And as with good mechanics, if you find a good pastor, hey, you've, you've found somebody worth his weight in gold. Well, let me make an observation about good mechanics. A mechanic is very clear about his job. He's not in the business to chit-chat over a cup of coffee. He knows that ultimately his responsibility is to get your car back on the road. And likewise, a pastor's top priority has to be the doctrine. What he believes and what he teaches. Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the reading. Do not neglect this gift. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. And on and on it goes. You see, a pastor has to juggle a lot of balls. Over the years, I've been an architect and a builder and a carpenter and a principal and a groundskeeper and a janitor and a party planner and an office manager and a music producer an accountant, a wedding coordinator, and an interior decorator. Not a very good one, but I've been an interior decorator and a relief worker and a hospital chaplain, etc., etc., etc. But there is one ball that I cannot drop. I need to study thoroughly and deliver faithfully the Word of God. Notice what Paul tells Timothy here in verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Notice these words. Give yourself entirely to them. 
that means that a pastor isn't going to have a lot of hobbies. If a pastor is a scratch golfer, then something is terribly wrong. After doing my job and ministering to my wife and spending time with my kids, there hasn't been a lot of free time. Understand this. From the year 2000 to the year 2010, a whole decade, I've had at least one son working on the grounds crew at the Gwinnett Country Club. That means that since the turn of the century, I've had access to free golf. And yet, do you realize how many times I've taken advantage of the privilege? I'm ashamed to admit this. I mean, this borders on poor stewardship. I've been wasteful of God's blessings. But I probably haven't played two dozen rounds over those ten years. In fact, if you saw me play at the men's retreat this past weekend, you'll know. And I love golf. I love to play. There's just this higher priority that keeps pressing in on me. Once there was a church board that interviewed a prospective pastor, and he told them, he says, if I come to your church, you can have my feet or my mind, but you cannot have both. The pastor meant that if he was always running to meetings and hospital calls and social events, that he'd never be able to give time to the proper attention of God's Word. The teaching is a pastor's most pressing priority. Hopefully you'll forgive me if I happen to miss you in the hospital, but how can you ever forgive me if I teach false doctrine and mislead someone to hell? You know, a school bus driver has 30 lives in his hands by the time he reaches the schoolhouse. The pilot of a 747 has about 350 lives hanging on the decisions that he makes. But it's not just lives in my hands on Sundays as if that were not enough. It's eternal souls. This is a weighty responsibility. As Spurgeon once said, we tremble lest we should mistake or misinterpret the word. You can't imagine the weight of that responsibility. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching ABC's World News Tonight with Diane Sawyer. And she kept baiting her audience. She kept saying, stay tuned. Pastors come out of the closet with a secret that will surprise you. And, and, and she caught my attention. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I'll, I'll wait for this. And, and, of course, I'm thinking, homosexuals should not be pastors. That's what I'm thinking. But it was worse. Here's the opening transcript of the report. I am an atheist, says Jack, a Southern Baptist with more than 20 years in ministry. I live, out, I live out my life as if there is no God, says Adam, who is part of the pastoral staff of an evangelical church in the Bible Belt. The two who ask that their real identities be protected are pastors who have lost their faith. And these two men who have built their careers around faith say they now feel trapped. Now, the tone of the report was to drum up sympathy for these poor pastors. In fact, their faces were sort of blacked out in order to protect them from the harsh judgments of church members. But you know what I thought? I thought about the ripped-off believers who attend their churches. Hey, they get deceived every single week. Their pastor isn't even a Christian. Talk about a violation of a church's trust. To me, this is the ultimate case of pastoral malpractice. Here's an example of the blind leading the blind. Hey, put the word of God and the salvation of the souls in the hands of this kind of a man, and disaster is about to happen. He will damage what our Lord desires to build. All he's after is a paycheck. 
Paul speaks of such men in chapter 6, verse 5, who suppose godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. We need pastors who will contend for the faith, not pretend to have faith. And yet there are too many like that out there. Notice what else Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul not only expects Timothy to be sincere, but to get better. He needs to progress in his grasp of the word and his ability to communicate. You know, teaching is a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. A man either has it or he doesn't. But it's a gift that you can cultivate. You can grow. You can improve your methods. And I take this to heart. I try to get better every single week. Over the years, I hope you noticed. As Paul would say, I hope... My progress is evident to all. Again, recall what Paul says, who Paul says is worthy of double honor. Chapter 5, verse 17, he says, those who labor in the word and doctrine. The Greek word there translated labor means to feel fatigue. A good pastor tires himself out on the word. I'm a night owl, and some nights I'll study into the wee hours of the morning. I've even studied through the night a couple times. I'll study until I can't keep my eyes open any longer. I get into it and I just can't stop. When you study the Bible to teach others, it becomes hard work. Pouring over a passage and getting to the heart of the matter and peeling back the layers of meaning and deciphering the innuendos and then thinking through the applications and arranging it all in a a presentation that will catch people's attention and then seeking the Spirit's anointing and keeping it fresh and then doing it week after week for the same people who've heard you over and over for years. It can't, it's a great joy, but it can also be hard work. It's not just reading a few verses and then plopping a joke into a cute story. If you've watched a sporting event recently, you've seen the commercial that showcases the world's most interesting man. Have you seen this? I mean, the guy dives into uh, frigid waters and grabs fish out barehanded. And he's the world's most interesting man, supposedly. Well, in contrast, the church that I went to as a little boy, we could have bragged about having the world's most uninteresting Sunday school teacher. This guy was boring. Over the years, I, I've really struggled with my anger over this thing. Every time I try to come, become sympathetic to the situation, I boil over it with a righteous rage. There was no excuse for this. The church put Mr. Boring in charge of junior high boys. Every week, he read, the, read in a monotone voice the Baptist quarterly to a group of 12-year-old boys. Waterboarding would have been more humane. It was grits without butter, man. This was the bland leading the bland. The fellow thought he was doing the Lord and those boys a favor. In retrospect, he did more to drive those boys away from God than all the girly magazines and beer commercials Satan ever could have thrown across their path. Once a man went to see his doctor about a cure for his snoring. The doctor asked, he said, Does your snoring disturb your wife? The patient replied, does it disturb my wife? It disturbs the whole congregation. I am convinced that the greatest sin a pastor can commit is to bore people with the Bible. 
We pass out the bread of life. We squeeze honey from the honeycomb. This book is alive and powerful. It's a sharp, flashing sword. There should be nothing boring about Bible teaching. The goal of my teaching is not just to impart to you a lesson, but it's to create in you a hunger for more. And while I'm on on the subject, let me say a word about sermons today. You know, I'm afraid that in a world of discussion and dialogue and blogs and Facebook and interactive media, the idea of preaching and teaching, I mean a public proclamation of God's word, it seems to have fallen out of fashion these days. John Stott, he writes, The contemporary world is decidedly unfriendly towards preaching. Words have largely been eclipsed by images and the book by the screen. Who wants to listen to sermons nowadays? People are drugged by television, hostile to authority, and suspicious of words. I used to enjoy reading the sports columns on the AJC website. You know, you'd get some great insight from knowledgeable people who could get behind the scenes and give you the inside scoop. Today, though, those columns have become nothing more than an intro for all of the wingnuts out there who've never played a down of organized football to post comments on why the dogs now stink. I mean, what do I care about the opinion of a guy sitting at home in his underwear who's never had a meaningful job in his life telling me why Mark Rick shouldn't have his? Really? Here's the problem with the internet. Every opinion gets equal weight. This is even more distressing when the subject becomes spiritual truth. In real life, the message is always attached to the life of the messenger. I mean, you can size up the character of the character who's teaching you or who's making the comments. You attend a church to hear a man expound God's word. You can see his life. You can watch, you know, when he's tested. You know, you realize he's accountable to other leaders and to a community of believers. You trust this guy in what he says. Attend the church that he pastors and you can inspect the fruit of his ministry. Whereas some wife-beating pedophile can post on a Christian blog and offer his opinion and you think, how insightful. I can't wait to hear from him again. You don't even know. In cyberspace, you never know what's behind the curtain. Multiple times here in Paul's letter to Timothy, he encourages him to command and teach, to teach and exhort, to confess the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, to command those. He says, preach the word. You see, God's way of communicating spiritual truth to his people goes beyond just each person reading the Bible for themselves. God wants the word read and preached in the open atmosphere of a community of believers. He calls a preacher to perform this task. The man studies hard to prepare for this endeavor. He submits to others to make sure that he's accurate. He chooses his words effectively. And then when the moment comes, he speaks boldly and courageously. And when God's Spirit takes hold of the message, the miraculous fills the air. Simple words become flying daggers. Spiritual arrows streak toward their targets. It's as if the congregation comes under heavenly fire. Or there's a gaping wound and something said actually stops the bleeding. You walk out with a healing poultice over what was a few minutes earlier a festering sore. 
Hey, each week I take part in miracle work. Perhaps you take it for granted, but I sure don't. When I preach, I feel God's grip. I'm under His sway. I sense His heart. I know firsthand how vital the act of preaching is to the plan of God. Of course, there's a place in church life for interaction and for discussion. Iron sharpens iron, as the proverb says. We can learn from one another. But there's a movement in the church today that would like to replace preaching with discussion. Out with monologue, in with dialogue. Rather than trumpet the truth, pastors are taught to engage in conversation. Why be so dogmatic? Again, every opinion should be given equal weight and authority. The problem with that is that it's not biblical. And here's why. If our problem is, say, garbage collection, there could be some benefit to a roundtable discussion. The service providers, the politicians, the citizens, they all have a stake in what's going on. Let's all talk about it. But when it comes to truth, no roundtable is required. A one-man pulpit will suffice. For God is the one person who decides the truth. And a pastor's job is to speak God's word. Nothing more, nothing less. My job isn't to moderate a discussion or to entertain conflicting opinions or to stir up a conversation. Never forget, sin entered the world through a conversation. If Eve hadn't had a dialogue with the serpent, we'd still be in a garden paradise eating mangoes. My job is to discern sound doctrine and then to proclaim it loud and clear. And this calls for two ingredients, caution and courage. Before I step into the pulpit, I need to strive for accuracy. Before I try to be entertaining or cutesy or comical or contemporary or even passionate, I need to be right. A false teacher can be intense and sincere, and yet sincerity alone doesn't make a preacher true to God's Word. You can be sincerely wrong. Caution requires that we take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. Paul speaks of of Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. You see, a pastor needs to carefully follow God's word. And he also needs to be courageous for he charges and commands as well as teaches. And this is one of the tough parts of my job. I don't like being unpopular and controversial, but more and more I find it necessary. As our culture continues to drift from God, we get further and further from sound doctrine. That means that the truth starts to be perceived as more and more radical. I mean, 50 years ago, who would have thought a pastor exhorting a man to take leadership in his home and encouraging his wife to support him in that role would be interpreted as chauvinistic? Or that anyone would balk at the statement, homosexuals aren't suitable role models for other believers and shouldn't be the pastor of a church. I mean, when did these ideas become controversial? You see, the Bible hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years. What was sound doctrine then is still sound doctrine today. What was false doctrine then is still false doctrine today. God's truth is not a moving target. It's eternal. It's fixed. My goal is to bring the changeless gospel to a changing world. But that requires more and more courage. You see, people who have embraced the lies of this world don't always like to be told so. As Paul said in chapter 4, verse 2 here, their conscience has been seared. It's been cauterized. 
The nerve endings have been killed so that they no longer feel. They lack sensitivity to the truth. When Timothy reads Paul's words to him in chapter 1 verse 3, charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables, you know he expected sparks to fly. False, doc, false teachers don't like to be told and charged and told what to do. You know, twice in this letter, Paul orders Timothy to command. 1 Timothy 4 verse 11 says, command and teach. Recall, it wasn't the ten suggestions that Moses brought down for Israel from the top of Mount Sinai. It was the ten commandments. I mean, some ideas are not debatable. Have you noticed we, know, we negotiate everything in our society? Every political, every business decision that's made today involves some sort of compromise. Yet God doesn't strike deals. God doesn't sit down with our union. God doesn't talk to our agent. His people don't work it out with our people. Certainly, God welcomes legitimate questions, but once he answers us, he expects us to shut up and obey. God gives orders, not proposals. There have been times when we've had to get in a guy's grill and command that he stop committing adultery or neglecting his wife or dabbling in heresy or being an evil influence to our youth. It's obey or get banned. Apparently, this was the approach Paul took to a couple of the guys in Ephesus. He mentions them there at the end of chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander had rejected the truth and had shipwrecked their faith. And as Paul put it, they had to be delivered to Satan that they learned not to blaspheme. Wow. We'll talk more about church fellowship and, and church discipline next week. But the point this morning is that God's commandments are non-negotiable. Well, the story's told of a churchgoer who, who wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper. He complained that going to church just didn't make sense to him. Why did you have to go to church? He wrote, I've gone for 30 years now. I've heard more than 1,500 sermons, but for the life of me, I can't recall a single one. What's the use in going? Well, this created quite a firestorm. Everybody weighed in with an opinion. One letter finally settled the issue. A man wrote in and he said, I've been married 30 years, and my wife has cooked 15,000 meals. Yet for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu of a single one. Yet they all nourished me and gave me strength. Likewise, I might not remember all the sermons I've heard, but each one was like a meal. It gave me strength to make it another day. Hey, let me sum up this morning's message. May God kill me before we become a church where the blind are leading the blind. I intend to work until it kills me to keep from becoming a church where the bland are leading the bland. But we'll have a killer church if the blessed are leading the blessed. A pastor who teaches God's word and people who hunger for God's word are both blessed. For there is a joy in learning and living out sound doctrine. I'll close with God's promise to his people in Jeremiah 3 verse 15. The Lord tells them, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. A pastor who feeds God's flock sound doctrine blesses his people and becomes a fulfillment of God's promise. I want to be a shepherd according to God's heart.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your people, Lord, who gathered today, Lord, to open up their hearts and to worship you and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to rally around your word, to be supportive, Lord, of your church. The church matters to you, and it should matter more to us. Lord, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. We're the church of the living God. We're the household or the family of God. Lord, we have a big job to reach our community for Jesus. Lord, help us to be about that work. Strengthen us today, Lord. Encourage our hearts. Lord, help us to be the the people you desire us to be and the church you intend for us to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.